with the inception and traction that blockchain and crypto has gathered, the world is possibly on the verge of the largest evolution since the mainstream of the internet. Given the fluidity and dynamic nature of this technology, business leaders, enthusiasts, and veterans all need to band together to navigate the current and upcoming storms. Participants in Web 3.0 want a trusted resource that gives them pertinent information about projects, tokens, technology, and businesses. We are business people talking the business of crypto. We are Y Whales. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, Y Whales, wherever in the world you are today. So it is July 27th, 2023. Uh, this is episode four of the Y Web 3 podcast. Uh, so let's just dive right into it. Uh, over the past week, the cryptocurrency market has seen a slight upward trend, with the total market cap currently standing at around $1.2 trillion. $1.2 trillion. Uh, Bitcoin continues to dominate the market, followed by Ethereum. However, the market is still extremely volatile, uh, with the top movers being a couple of fan coins uh, related to, to soccer or football for you Europeans, um, showing some significant gains. In the rapidly evolving digital landscape, regulatory frameworks for cryptocurrencies are taking shape, with significant developments in the United States, Germany, Japan, and Singapore. Uh, meanwhile, technology advancements are pushing the boundaries as seen in Italy's new central bank's DeFi project. And we will spend a lot of time talking about the world, uh, world coins orb, uh, including one of our hosts has recently had his retina scanned. Uh, the use of AI is expanding. Open AI shut down their, their own AI detection tool. Shocking. Uh, and a startup planning AI generated newscasts, uh, is, is, been launched. Uh, Netflix is listing many high-paying AI jobs amid the Hollywood strikes, uh, and these developments underscore the intersection of technology and regulation and the ethical and labor issues arising from these advancements. Consumers and traders will experience a more regulated cryptocurrency environment, uh, potentially enhancing security and trust. Technology advancements may provide a new investment opportunities and personalized news content. These, these articles that we will be going through highlight the need for clear regulations and ethical guidelines to ensure that these technologies are used responsibly and that the rights of the stakeholders are protected. All of this and more in this week's YWeb3 podcast. So let's introduce our panel. Uh, Toby, let's go ahead and start with you, sir. Awesome, Jay. Great uh, having me. Excited to be here and talk about the the world's uh, goings on for the day. Um, so, Toby Rush, serial entrepreneur. I must like paint because I keep building stuff from scratch. Um, current company that I'm working on is Redeem. You know what we built is a kind of a mobile first identity and connectivity platform that simplifies and secures digital experiences. Right, so we've taken a universal identifier being your phone number um, and devices that everybody has being the actual phone to enable kind of a seamless consumer engagement while reducing friction, fraud, and identity-based attacks. So play a lot in how do we make this easy for the masses, the consumers, um, both uh, in regular Web 2 as well as Web 3. So excited to jump in and talk all, all things crypto, blockchain, and Web 3. Awesome. Thank you, Tony. Uh, Tony, you're next. Um, yeah, so hi, uh, uh, Tony Lewis, really excited to be here. Um, CEO and uh, co-founder of, um, of thinkchain.ai. Uh, my background basically splits in half. I spent 10 years in the finance industry at various different banks and hedge funds. Um, and then uh, the last 10 years in tech, data and machine learning. Uh, my prior company, Conflict Cannabis, was a white combinator business from 2015, Series A, 2019, 2020, something like that. Um, and now I'm very much focused on applying AI through aut autonomous AI agents to financial analysis. So we built a platform which includes a variety of agents, Discover, Chain of Thought, and um, our financial analyst, which uh, essentially writes code and then executes it on the fly to perform financial analysis. So yeah, really excited to be here, really excited to chat about AI, crypto, and yeah, I'm the panelist who, uh, who through encouragement of a friend, went and got orbed today. So I can share some of that experience. <laughs> awesome, excited for it. Thank you. Uh, Sydney? Yeah, sure. So thanks for having me, Jay. Uh, I'm the CEO and co-founder of Maple Finance. Uh, so we are a capital market built on, on top of the blockchain. So you can think of us as a platform for institutional lending. Uh, my background was banking and finance. So I used to work in the banking sector in Australia. And then I went and ran treasury at a commercial leasing uh, fintech company before starting Maple. Uh, so we launched in May of 2021. We've done about $2 billion in loans so far. And primarily, uh, we're doing loans that support, typically it's Web3 businesses. Uh, but this year, uh, we've branched um, 
and made significant inroads into real-world asset lending. So that's been a big focus for us so far. We currently have uh, Maple Cash out, which is doing effectively tokenized T-bills, uh, but we, we really try and play across the stack. And so we'll lend to real-world asset businesses, Web3 businesses, and do things like tokenize real-world assets. Awesome. I think this uh, absolutely highlights in our panel that we have experts that understand the field. Uh, and so one of the things that we at YWales like to do is, is really ask the people that work in this field every single day. Uh, theorizing is great. Uh, that's a lot of what I do. Uh, but here's the builders and the entrepreneurs that are really in the space. So let's kick this off and, and, you know, let's jump into the item that, you know, none of us really want to talk about, but regulation really runs our industry. And so while, uh, we all like to see the, the big bull markets coming in and, and understanding where things are going to just, you know, go to the moon. Um, it really starts with, you know, we want solid investments. Uh, we want regulation that protects consumers and investors. Uh, but it needs to be a little bit more common sense than we've seen. Uh, you know, our first article today we're going to talk about is the crypto bill that, that just passed the congressional committee, um, which is the financial services, uh, uh, financial Innovation and Technology for the 21st Century Act. It's called Fit for 21. Um, and it, it, we were talking about it, you know, kind of before the show started. It just appeared out of nowhere. Like no one was tracking this. I never heard anyone talking about it. And it did provide, you know, quite a bit of guidelines for the way to tokenize real world assets. But it seems to, in, in a few ways, and that's why it's so confusing when we're talking about U.S. regulation, it seems to, to prohibit the tokenization of securities. Um, and, and that's a big challenge because, I mean, that's where we see that blockchain will have the most function and features related to this. Um, and when I say that it seems to, it means that we have a tweets from the uh, congressional GOP stating that it, it prohibits this. Uh, but nowhere when we were reading the bill could we actually find uh, anything that says that. So welcome to uh, United States uh, diplomacy and some of these very, con you know, confluted uh, bills that, that show up overnight and then get passed without anyone actually reading them. You know, Sydney, you're, you're so focused on, you know, again, tokenization of real world assets uh, and you come about it from a legal framework, meaning you're not just like, hey, we're putting these things on here and, and trust us. Uh, you're actually following the laws. Like it, MICA and what we're seeing in the EU are really trying to make this a clear guideline so that not just one person can do it, but you can have an entire industry um, following laws around consumer protection, correct? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the, um, the one of the big problems so far has been that the only way to do it uh, at the moment is kind of through exemptions for securities laws. You have like Reg D or Reg S are, are both are the two common ones, Reg D being limiting something to being smaller in size and accredited investors in the US, and then Reg S being you know, offshore and, and kind of walling off uh, access uh, to the US market. So I think um, having, having this bill and having this legis legislation make a good effort towards uh, allowing uh, the issuance of tokens and the recognition that tokens can be property, I think is a, is a really good step. In the uh, in the right direction, I'd have to go into it to, in more detail to understand how it treats tokenized securities, or at least how it kind of sets out a pathway there. But I think um, anything that anything that uh, gives you a path as a crypto startup to kind of offering tokens that could represent real world assets or that could represent financial instruments, and kind of gives you that clarity of how they should be treated, it is is a really strong and really promising step. Yeah, and I think one of the the things is we've seen the United States just lagging behind, <clears throat> and so the fact that this it may have come out of nowhere because they're trying to respond to MICA, uh, and they are trying to respond to you know other countries around the world that are embracing blockchain that are that are enticing you know uh, Switzerland, <laughs> like with open arms they will accept any you know any and all regulated blockchain projects uh, that really want to focus on the tokenization of real world assets. Or the security around, you know, consumers' funds and and kind of moving into this next generation of of uh, you know cryptocurrencies mm -hmm. and blockchain technologies. You know, Toby, one of the things that you spend so much time on is is again, you know, the security of how to manage these assets. And mm -hmm. we're not seeing you know a ton of of work being done by the United States, which is again still the leading you know economic capital of the world right now. For right now, I, we can talk about BRICS here in a minute. Um, but but do we do we believe that the U.S. is capable? Uh, of kind of catching up at this point because we're lagging behind. Oh, wow. What a loaded question. Is the U.S. capable? Of course we're capable. 
Um, will we actually uh, rise to the occasion? I mean, on a, to some degree, anything that brings clarity is good. Even if it's wrong initially, it gives you something to work against. I think the ambiguity is what kills people, right? To simply know, okay, here's where it is today. So even if it's a law that says, or a proposed law that um, is slightly off, would rather have something in writing that everybody can respond to. So again, I'm big proponent of getting uh, you know written clarification that everybody can at least stand on. And, and if we don't like it, then we kind of come and specifically talk about why this doesn't work or why it doesn't matter. Again, kind of on a, the, a blush is great, you know, fits for 21. That sounds great. We've got clarity like, oh, wait, is it slightly off here? And now we have something to respond to. Um, you know, you, you mentioned one of the things that we, we have seen like a couple of the um, kind of brands and other folks that we've been talking to is a concern about well, if I'm holding these things in a wallet, is it a custodial wallet? Is it a non-custodial wallet? If it's a custodial wallet, who's responsible for that? Is that a, um, again, am I now participating in some sort of uh, financial payment transfer? Um, is a big concern. Of course, the, the, the bigger brands in particular worried about, hey, if I give somebody an NFT that has nothing to do with cryptocurrencies and I don't intend it for sale and I don't intend it for asset appreciation, but someone goes and sells it anyways, am I still liable? There's a lot of um, ambiguity and uncertainty in the market, which is definitely hindering us. So the the more, uh, again, written guidance we have, the better. Yeah. And, and so let's jump uh, right to the next article, which is what is a cryptocurrency? So uh, Singapore's high court recognizes crypto as a trustable property, uh, stating it is a thing in action that can be held on trust. Uh, Bybit wins the court case against a contractor who transferred crypto assets to personal accounts, and the court emphasized the exchange uh, of value of cryptocurrencies. Uh, Sydney, are you able to kind of uh, help us walk through what this what occurred here? Yeah, so th- this was a really interesting one, and um, you know the 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 headline of the case where they declare that cryptocurrencies are, are a property and an asset um, is uh, is probably a little bit misleading. But effectively, what happened is is that an employee stole uh, stole money or is alleged to have stolen money from uh, from Bybit, and uh, this was uh, Tether, so a stablecoin, and she held it across a number of assets that um, were nominally under her control. And so Bybit asked the court to rule that the assets were being held on trust by her for Bybit. So trying to say, hey, this is still our property, even though we don't actually uh, bear control over it uh, at the moment. And uh, the defense uh, the defense from the lady was that it was actually controlled by, I think it was uh, her, her brother or a relative. Um, and so she couldn't actually transfer it. And therefore, it was kind of the uh, the property of her brother. But the interesting thing here is um, looking past that. So looking past the recognition that it was uh, it was property, we, we have a case where the court is increasingly getting familiar with the rights associated with digital assets. And, you know, I, I come at this from the perspective of, of um, you know, running running Maple where, you know, we, we, we are a lending platform. And so this is a case that could, you know, could directly impact us at some stage where, you have to deal with assets that were loaned to a borrower, and where um, you know you're, you're claiming a right to get those back if there's a default or something of that nature, and you're claiming that this is real property, um, which uh, you know which uh, you can have recourse uh, you know recourse to a borrower uh, for, or which you can accept as collateral. So I think that's that's really the significance of this case. Um, anecdotally, uh, from from our experience, you know. Uh, we were doing lending or, or rather lending was occurring on Maple through 2022. And um, anytime a default occurred uh, in respect of a cryptocurrency loan, what you'd always found is that um, the courts had upheld the uh, validity of the loan documents, uh, even if they were lending stable coins rather than fiat dollars. So I think this is, um, you know, DeFi and crypto uh points to like DeFi and crypto lending getting more mature and um, being able to resolve those disputes through the court, which is what you would want to see if you want uh, DeFi to gradually start to, to take over a larger share of kind of what is the present financial system. It's really interesting, you know, to hear to hear you, you know, talk through this. And it, it has to do with like, how do you manage this? Like, you know, for, for traditional funds, it's like, of course, you have asset managers, mm-hmm. you have custodians, you know, we have this entire framework that's been built out for, you know, 
decades and, and de- centuries, you know, really, you know, Tony, you're, you're over in uh, London, you said, I mean, it's, you know, one of the, the top economic capitals of the world. And there's so many, you know, framework, like this wouldn't even be a question. It'd just be, it'd be a ruling of like, oh, of course, this is, you know, your custody. It, it shouldn't have been, it was improperly stored, but the courts are having to learn like, what is a cryptocurrency? Like, and you know, that I think that really underscores, you know, how early we are in this. You know, Tony, um, you know, while, while this isn't your, your, your wheelhouse, you know, you certainly deal a lot with custody and you still certainly deal a lot with education. You know, do you, are you surprised by, you know, having to do a court ruling of just what in the world this thing is? Um, so I, I don't have much familiarity with the actual ruling. Um, but no, I mean, I, you know, I, I think that there's, there's, Sort of this adoption curve that occurs for almost anything that's brand new, and mm-hmm. that needs to go through a sort of you know test case, uh, you know scenarios before you can get a definition of it and sort of understand exactly what the ramifications are of it. Um, and yeah, I mean, obviously, this is like you know, AI space is, is is classic for this kind of stuff. When something new gets invented, regulation takes time to you know pick up on it and try to figure out how to actually slide it within existing frameworks or to create an entirely new framework. Um, so yeah, no, I mean, I like I I think these things are, are pretty natural and organic, and they're, they're Hopefully, a, a good representation of how our system works. Um, even if at times it can be a bit stuttering and a bit slow. Um, and usually, I mean, of course, the problem is if that gets captive to lobbyist groups and the powerful rather than the people who actually need it, and that can be quite challenging. And I think that's possibly something happening within the AI, AI space. Um, but yeah, no, I generally, I, generally speaking, I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, of uh, processes which have been historic, historically worked to try and define how these things work and how they should work. So yeah. I enjoy seeing them happen, even if in this instance, I don't really understand them. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, the, the challenge and the reason I, I brought you into this conversation is because you're working with an entirely new, at, you know, kind of field as well. And, yeah. and you know, it's a lot easier when you're, you know, saying, hey, you know, object A, option option B, you know, those kind of things. Um, you know, and, and the court understands, you know, this is a car, this is a person, this is, you know, this is money. Um, and now we're having to start with like what exists and what doesn't exist and everything around there. So that's, that's absolutely amazing. Um, so let's jump in. We've got, you know, two quick Binance stories. Uh, I think that which are very relevant. There's a lot of concern around Binance, uh, becoming the next FTX, uh, becoming insolvent and a lot of other things. And so the, the first one is a little concerning. Uh, Binance withdraws its Germany crypto license application. Uh, Fallon reported, uh, re- uh, rejection by regulators in other markets. Uh, company plans to reapply with updated information. On the same, on the same, uh, note, uh, the, re- uh, the return was made possible uh, for Binance to return to Japan uh, to purchase of a regulated crypto exchange, uh, Secura um, Exchange, uh, which is a Bitcoin exchange. So I, I think this is really showcasing that regulators are not comfortable in any way, shape, or form with exchanges. And in the problem that, that and I'll speak and any of you guys jump in, exchanges are not banks. Exchanges should not be custodians. You know, the NASDAQ does not hold any of our funds, neither does the Dow or the S&P. Um, they, they just allow for people to be trade, you know, to, to manage the matching engine and to match the trades. And cryptocurrencies, because it was so early on, they kind of do everything. They, they manage the client acquisition. They manage the matching engines. They manage the custody. Um, and, and you kind of end up with this FTX thing that, Nobody really understands, you know, is there a different division that's handling this? And while people thought that they were properly custodying their, their tokens and their clients' funds, it was all just mixed into a, a, a massive mixer, um, which violates, you know, so many laws, but there was, it was unregulated space because they, you know, it was cryptocurrencies. It wasn't really fiat. Um, Sydney, you see this so often. Um, you know, when you, when you, you, you follow laws, you understand MIFID, you understand MICA, you understand, you know, these, these various regulations. You know, do you believe an exchange should, should have custody of clients' funds? Uh, I think, I think for a trading exchange, uh, there's a strong argument against them having custody of clients' funds. I think what we're seeing here where the exchanges do everything is, it's kind of just a function that it was early technology and these were bearer instruments. So, um, to create an exchange to begin with, um, you know, you, you had to take custody of, of somebody's assets. And then I think as the space has evolved and, and the volume of transactions and the value of transactions is growing, it's naturally going to make sense for this to start to resemble how it operates in traditional assets where you have a separation of custody and, uh, and the actual spot exchange venue. Um, and so I think 
you're, I think you're going to see more law, like laws or regulation kind of shape the industry in that direction to where you have custodians, you keep your assets there, but you've already seen the beginnings of it with like Hopper Clearloop where you can have your assets with a custodian or rather in, in a, in a, a custody wallet, but lock those down there and then trade, uh, trade them on an exchange and then, you know, it settles out uh, with the exchange at the end of the day. So I think that that's probably more what it is going to look like. I think one of the things I noticed about this um, headline, it seems like Binance will, will probably come back and refile, um, uh, which I expect that they would, given the attractiveness of the European market post uh, post Mica. Yeah, and I think one of the challenges that that we're going to see, and, and by the way, if they were truly rejected, you know, that would make that would mean that they would have to wait about two years to reapply. So mm-hmm. generally, what happens is they they applied, they 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 got some some bad feelings or some bad mojo from the from the regulators. They pull they pull the uh, the application so they can reapply at a later date. It's not going to mm-hmm. be quick. It's not going to be easy. Um, and and so quite simply, they're trying to find ways to enter this. Uh, the way they're entering re-entering Japan. Is by purchasing uh, someone with a license. Uh, regulators don't like that. Uh, it, it looks very bad because you couldn't go get your own. Um, but but it does solve a, a problem for a very short period of time. So there, there's our regulation uh, uh, section for today, and we'll, let's go dive into really I think the biggest news and and I, the biggest concern, and we'll go through with it. So uh, let's talk about the orb. Um, and, and Tony, I'd love to like let's just start with your experience. You just did this. Um, talk about you know why you 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 did it, how it worked, and and how you feel about um, Sam Altman kind of. Of knowing how your retina looks at this point yeah. in time. <laughs> yeah, uh, so um, I'm a sucker for, for new tech. Uh, that's definitely true. Um, so uh, yeah, so the experience was kind of funny because um, uh, you actually are supposed to like book in to reserve a slot, um, but I didn't do that. I actually just walked up to one of the locations because a friend of mine had done it a couple of hours earlier and he said like, they, you know, there's no real system here. You could just sort of walk in. Um, so I, I went in, I, I had already downloaded the app. It sort of scans it and then you kind of stare at the orb and there's this little circle that kind of glows around as it sort of, you know, looks at you and scans you. And then it has a few different prompts that come up saying things like, you know, the Hilaris one is verifying humanity, um, which, uh, you know, it, it was successful. And then I made jokes about that. And then they pointed out that everyone else had made the same jokes all day long. <laughs> <It's>, uh, <laughs> Yeah, so it's uh, 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 for me, it's it's an interesting project. Um, I certainly think that this question about as AI gets better and as we move towards this concept of AGI, what does that mean for productivity? Um, so the sort of the statement that you know we're all going to share it through you know some form of token seems like as good a stab as any as to how this sort of you know this this stuff might progress. So yeah, I'm happy to you know generally be a part of it and not overly concerned about someone understanding what my resume looks like because most of my personal information is already out there anyway. And I did 23 and me how like 10 years ago. So <laughs> yeah, I, I did I, the listen, same I, one. I, yeah, I've got, I got 23 and me that my DNA is out there. I, I wouldn't be afraid of the orb. I think, I think my concern is, is it's very, it's not a decentralized project. Um, but, but, you know, Toby, you've, you've got some, some thoughts on this. So I'd love to allow you to kind of, uh, pepper Tony about, you know, his, his experience during this and, and, uh, also want to hear your thoughts overall. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll back up a little bit and give a little bit of context of kind of my background in this space. And, uh, so I actually come at this with a really a deep understanding, both of the tech as well as the use cases and, and implementation and rollout and scale out. So my previous company I sold to Alibaba. Um, actually, it was Ant Financial, which owns Alipay. Um, and the product we had was an eye-based biometric, right? So okay. I understand the, the iris. And by the way, it's retina. I mean, it's, it's iris, not retina. Minor, okay. minor, the, the iris is the color of the eye. Um, we were actually looking at the blood vessels and the whites of the eye using the selfie camera. So understand eye-based biometric incredibly well in the overall identity space. Um, when we sold that to, to Alibaba, uh, they asked me to run the biometrics and identity for Ant for a number of years, which I did. So I had teams in Beijing and Singapore, San Francisco, Kansas City. We stood up platforms um, in China, India, Indonesia, Thailand. Like so these were, you know, we had 700 million users. Right? So this is not like a small side project. Like we were doing this at scale um, and understood the, the challenges. Um, and so as I, as I look and I've followed Worldcoin for a while and I've always kind of shaken my head, I'm like, man, I don't think I really understand this because it doesn't make sense, but they really dove into it <clears throat> until this last week when they really started making all that noise and they rolled out. And so I forced myself to, to really try to understand and come at it 
as much as I could with a, a an even handed approach. And I came away being really skeptical. Um, I would say, um, and, and I'll, let me separate my skepticism. So their tech is actually very sound. Like, uh, like Tony, you have nothing to worry about the way they're scanning the iris. They're doing this one way hash. Um, that's not reversible. There, there really is. They're not creating a big database of biometrics, right? It is, it's actually quite secure. Um, the iris is a very good biometric. There's no really concern um, upon that. Um, we could have done this for a long time. Um, they're, they're disingenuous when they say, well, you can only use the iris. Like a single fingerprint is not as good as a single iris. Ten fingerprints are actually much better than a single iris. Um, and we've had fingerprint scanners commercially available in most of the airports you go to today, especially internationally, um, that do everything that Orb could have done. Right? So this isn't like we, kept, we created a new technology. Um, we're using fairly well-known technology, fairly well-known kind of one-way hash- hashing, kind of a cryptography um, like all that is real and works. I step back and where I get, I think, really frustrated with what they're doing is I think they're going to give us a, another really big nothing burger for an industry, right? And it's going to be one more example they point to is, oh, look, there went another VC with a pump and dump on the pump world coin for it's really it's a meme coin. There is no utility. The utility they've articulated, but I'll even ask you guys. So, um, so far you, what you've heard, what is the utility that they are uh, projecting that they're going to be able to have with this. There's two or three I've heard. Have you guys? I'll, I'll let you guys start. What, what have you heard? We'll ask, the guy, we'll ask the guy who just got his iris scan. Yeah. <laughs> you, you got first I mean, so yeah, the 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 uh, I, I I my understanding of the utility they're suggesting is that there's communal ownership of the product of AGI. Um, so that's not utility. That's like a kind of a quasi form of. I don't know. It's almost sort of communist, I guess. Well, utility, that's like, utility. Proof of humanity. Like, the, I'll, I'll grant that. That's a, a a point of utility. Have you heard of the other use cases that they've? I've seen. No, them no, 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 yeah, I can, I can, I, I can, I can think of a couple of others. I actually wrote about. I, I wrote a small article about this um, back in 2019. Not necessarily Worldcoin, but um, I was looking at doing like consumer lending on top of a blockchain and thinking, how do you actually verify to prevent civil attacks? And one of the, one of the concepts was biometric encryption of a, of a blockchain address. So that's one. So preventing civil attacks. Mm-hmm. Um, the other one, the other issue uh, that we encountered was thinking about how you would lend in emerging markets where there isn't good governance and identi- identity framework. So there's not like a DMV in the Philippines that you can go and just get a license. And so um, I did see that as one of the criticisms mentioned, which is that if people in emerging markets are kind of being scanned disproportionately, but they're the ones who stand to benefit the most because they can't get a government-issued ID elsewhere, or certainly not one that's going to be considered valid. So I would say that that's probably the other um, the other uh, uh, utility of this that I could see. Mm-hmm. Jay, would you so, have anything else to You know... I have I I don't know enough about the project the coin overall because it's been and the coin's been around for a while I think I, I talked about it last year so to to me it's it it seems to be kind of if I was going to go with anything it's it's the gatekeeper of like you know how to re verify if you lose you know uh, access to your to your wallet you lose access to something or to to properly vote without you know these AI bots so no I, I'm not I am I would love to hear. Sure. Totally. I mean, the, the two that I've heard, at least them talk the most about is UBI, universal basic income. It could be the, the foundation to, to roll out a UBI scheme. If AI is going to, um, kind of create all these efficiencies and all this extra money, like what's a, uh, a democratized way or an efficient way and fair way to re- redistribute and give people UBI. The other one I've heard a lot is like, well, this could be used for voting because you do get great civil attack, right? It's say your iris is very unique. It's one one iris per person, one vote per person that could be linked back to that. Um, I've heard some of the other, again, in particular in developing markets, um, is this a, a better way to to do identity, to do lending? Um, and my my I'll kind of comment on the first two for the first two points um, to start with um, the idea of UBI. Like, there's no way. Like, governments are not going to trust another third-party entity, much less one that's completely decentralized, to determine who a citizen is, right? Like, the governments, there's two things governments, I think, in my opinion, will never do. They're never going to give up their own fiat, and they're not going to give up the ability to say who is a citizen and who isn't, right? So I think Bitcoin is real. It's going to be here a long time. It is not going to replace the U.S. dollar. It is not going to replace the yuan. It's not going to replace uh, the rupee. Like, these major currencies in the world 
that's how they manage the government. That's how they manage the country, right? When inflation is too high or um, they need to roll out a policy, fiscal policy and ability to manage their own fiat is, is just a too important of a tool. So I, I can't ever see a, a large sovereign country giving up, giving up that really strong tool. Maybe some developing markets, but again, I don't think it's really ever going to become mainstream because it's too powerful of a tool that governments have. And I think in a fair way to help manage the country, like um, people are emotional and uh, you know, they, they do some really crazy things um, and not understanding kind of the, the, the larger or longer term scope. I think UBI, like DOA, like there's no way um, the idea of voting as well, like voting is well, who, who can vote. So again, this is voting in the real world, right? So voting in a city, a state, a government, a company, um, you know, going to something that they don't control or own, I don't think it's going to happen. What I do see governments doing is I think they're going to do a couple. I think they're all going to do their own CBDC. Makes a ton of sense. I'll have my own basically cryptocurrency. I think they're also all going to have their own decentralized identity, which they issue. Right. So instead of a driver's license, instead of a passport, they can do the exact same thing with fingerprints or irises, have their own DID, which they have created. Like, hey, I can give you a passport. I can also give you this digital identity on a blockchain, which they manage, they control. So it's, it is not truly decentralized. So I'm not claiming that it is. Um, and there will be abuse and I'm sure there'll be a lot of issues with that as well. But I just can't see, again, most countries, um, I'm sure there might be a few exceptions, trusting something that they don't initiate and manage to, to be able to roll out a, something like a voter ID type of system. My, so that's some of the concerns. Really, again, it's don't, utility and the use cases they're talking about. I mean, I'll pause. Don't they use private, private providers, though, for like, like vote counting is, is, you know, private outsourced contractors, clear at airports, does your mm-hmm. identity is, is like a private company mm-hmm. as well. So mm-hmm. isn't another way to look at it? It's like you've got a private company that generates your, your um, private key here on the WorldCoin blockchain. And then, you know, governments can just read that and, how, and use it how they want. But like, you know, in the same way that the government can't change what your retina says, they can't change what this, you know, what this uh, private and public key combination says. Right. Maybe again, I think they're going to want, they're not, they're going to trust, okay, this is a piece of a, uh, this is a coin or really an NFT that says you're a unique yeah. person. But that's all it says. You're a unique person. Okay. That's helpful. They're still going to have to go all the KYC, all the other pieces. So it's a minor helpful, but they're going to do this in person, right? So the, I think the utility is small. I, I think that's a really interesting point. So, Tony, you, you did this. Did you give any identification? Did you? Do they know who no, you are? No, they- it's actually. I mean, it's it, like it. It almost. Uh, it's kind of the opposite in the sense that you can, you can get to the point of having you know your yourself. Well, I don't know what the word would be, but like part of the system with nothing that's it has any other content about you whatsoever. So you don't even need to give your phone number or email address or name or anything like that. It's so you just you just walked up, they scanned you, you said peace and walked right out. Yeah, they, I mean, like so. The, so I did use my phone number in the end to to like log into the app, but you don't have to do that either. You just have to, you know, it, like it, it seems it's almost for, for they even. I think there's some system where you can sort of use a nickname or something like that, so that you don't have mm-hmm. to give them your okay. actual name. So you can, I'd, yeah, it's like I think the idea. <laughs> Is it, it, it's just the fact that you have your, your, um, your human. Yeah, it's the Renner scam. So yeah. it's, it's unique, it's human, and it's, um, but there's, there's can no you, information attached to it whatsoever. You know, can, can you recall it? Like, if you go and scan somewhere again, like, like, can you unlock it or, or recall it or use it now anywhere else? Uh, great. You, yeah, I've read, yeah, yes, you can. So the idea is if you yeah. uh, you can re-enroll, um, and it, it will resolve to the same hash. And so if you re-enroll, the initial one's gone. Right. So yes, you can re-enroll and it will effectively deactivate the initial uh, uh, scan. Do do you do you retain your assets? So like if I, you know, scan in and then I use it for a year and I've acquired all all my assets and I didn't have anything is, else linked to is, it and I lose I lose my phone. Yep. I go, crap, I need my stuff. Does it recover or is it just giving me a new identity? Unknown. <laughs> I, again, I feel like some of these things should be known before, you know, right, Tony right, went and scanned his, again, one his of eyeball. concerns is we've, you know, it's getting a ton of press, right? And there's oh, yeah. a lot of money on this token, right? It's getting a lot of trading. It's gone up. So again, I'm afraid, it, you know, the, the, the concept isn't necessarily bad. I don't think the way they're implementing it is going to be realistic in the long term. And it was just going to point back to like, great, there was another meme coin where a bunch of people got taken advantage of and all the VCs made the money 
And it was really just a nothing burger. So here, here's my point of where people ask us, what would you do different to Like, there's actually a really uh, strong, which a, or a effective piece of hardware that we all carry with us. Like we have biometrics right here and they're looking at our biomet- their, our biologics, right? It is actually incredibly good at detecting fakes, right? It doesn't matter how good the image or the 3D thing, you, your face ID is not going to work on it. Touch ID does not work on anything but fingers, right? So it's not perfect, um, but it actually does an amazing job of detecting, hey, there is a real human that just biometrically verified into a phone and nobody had to have my biometrics, right? And every, every device in the world is only going to get better at these biometrics on the phone because it becomes so powerful in security and what we're doing. Um, and by the way, that same device that a human just biometrically verified into has a globally unique number already associated to it. It's called the phone number that carriers have spent hundreds of billions of dollars making sure it's a very secure network. Now, again, it's not purely decentralized, but if the goal is kind of proof of humanity, I, I would argue 98, 99% of effectiveness, like we could just use our phones. <laughs> it would actually work really, really well. well and, and clearly, you know, the other thing that we have not talked about is just the horrible tokenomics of the coin. You know, there's there's a max supply of like 10 billion. They've only released 100 million. And so people are trading as if like, oh my God, it's a fully diluted thing. It's like, no, they've just been inking these things out. And, you know, it's again, a very centralized source. So uh, I, I think we'll be talking a lot about this over the over the next few months, uh, potent, you know, potentially years, or it could just be like any other shitcoin project that just kind of dies out. It was yeah. cute, cool. And then, you know, come out that, that Tony's, you know, had his, had his identity stolen through this thing and then we'll, we'll commiserate with them. And, um, you know, I would, I, I'd be curious again, you know, using it, you know, over the next couple months, if, it, you know, if it's a wallet, we can move in and out of it. And, and uh, you know, it is what is the recovery uh, if you lose it? Because to me, there's there's value, um, but but it just it it just doesn't seem shockingly like a very well rolled out product. Besides, you know, besides that, so, and I think and I think Toby, you make some really valid points. Like this is very clunky, and it's very much relying on this one orb, um, w- which we got to trust a Mr. Sam Altman to. Yeah, you end up with a very uh, rigid structure, right? So I always like flexible flexible mm-hmm. systems, flexible structures that can kind of bend and move. And, and actually, you mentioned 23andMe. The best identifier is actually DNA. Yeah. And so eventually, will phones actually be able to do a local DNA? Like, do, like really, will sensors get good enough? Like, that is actually the perfect sensor. Fair enough. What? <laughs> no, that's different. <laughs> there are no student <laughs> calls. Um, if you think about it, if a, if a phone, a sensor on the phone could immediately and quickly detect my DNA and, and match it, like that would actually be, the, but we've already done this whole Irish thing, but there's no yeah. flexibility to do anything different. Um, yeah. So yeah, it just feels very rigid. Perfect. Well, let's shift uh, a little bit from cryptocurrencies over to the AI side of things. And Tony, I think you have a, a lot to talk about there. So let's start with um, OpenAI had an AI detection tool because you know they wanted to protect everyone. And, and we're talking about the same person, uh, Sam Altman, who's running WorldCoin, uh, also runs OpenAI. And there's a lot of, we can discuss there. Uh, but OpenAI quietly shut down its AI detection tool. Uh, AI classifier due to poor accuracy, the tool was intended to detect content created using generative AI tools, uh, but faced, uh, you know, limitations and reliability issues. Tony, talk about like why something like this is important to have. And, and is it even possible to have a tool that does this? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, you know, uh, one of the things OpenAI are very good at is um, rapidly iterating. They release more features more quickly than really any company I've ever seen. This was one which came out, you know, fairly early with a lot of demand with people essentially trying to defend largely the education system, but actually other content as well from AI generated material. But it was pretty obvious to people who, you know, work with AI day in, day out that this is really like, it's very easy to bypass these systems if you want to. So you can do all kinds of stuff. I'm sure everyone out there has played with ChatGPT, you know, write in my style, write in this style, whatever it might be. Which means this particular method of identification, I think, was always going to be very, very tough. And the fact that anyone kind of claims to be able to, with any degree of accuracy, um, find AI content um, is, you know, it's, it's just it's always going to be a false claim. And there's loads of other tools out there which. Claims and, and there was a beautiful like for anyone who has not watched the South Park episode on ChatGTP, like they brought the school brought in an expert to to uh you know detect ai and it was like some you know wizard with like a falcon and you know sprinkling pixie <laughs> dust around and it, like there was just there was no there's no science to it there's no logic to it it's just like it's really hard to do 
Yeah. There's, I, I was really fascinated by, um, there's a, a professor at Wharton, uh, Ethan Molik, I think his name is. Um, and he's trying to take the opposite route and basically saying that he expects his students to use AI. He says you have to use it because learning from and working with AI is now a part of the world and it's something that we have to embrace. So there's sort of like this. And of course, I mean, there, there are all these other techniques that you can use to make sure someone isn't using AI, like have, you know, a verbal exam, exam in person, this kind of stuff. Um, but the idea that, you know, this is just, it's part of the world now. And the idea that you can sort of, you know, detect it out of existence, I think is, um, is tricky. There was another thing that happened, by the way, which has been kind of interesting, which was, um, there was a, an announcement that, uh, so, um, there's a sort of regulatory group, which is being formed, mm -hmm. uh, through, you know, Anthropic and, um, and OpenAI working with, you know, the White House. There was a statement that they, they said they were going to put some sort of a signature into AI content. Um, there was sort of an agreement, like kind of a passive agreement that they, they're going to have you know, some way, like not from the text itself, but well, obviously within the text, but not from the, um, uh, you know, forms of sentences, but some sort of AI signature. That was a really interesting announcement. I don't have any clue how that would work. Um, but they've said that they would try very hard to do that. So while on the one hand, they've shut down the detection tool. On the other hand, they've said they want to, you know, figure out some way to communicate to the wider world when something is AI generated, but it's tough. And I think that realistically, I think people who, uh, you know, are vulnerable to these things, particularly teachers, need to be thinking about this from the opposite perspective and trying to embrace it as much as possible rather than trying to like force it to the side because it just isn't going to work. Um, you know, everyone's using AI already and the content is really hard to detect. And I think the other thing is you can, like, what do we say when we're saying AI? It's like, don't use a computer. Like, it's, there's so many, like, Grammarly is, is technically AI, which the, the schools now encourage the kids to do. And, and, you know, I talk to my son who spent, you know, Two days writing a paper, um, and 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 got a, a a poor grade on it because of a variety of things. And the next time around, he just goes, you know what? He spent two hours with ChatGTP, went through it, learned the material, had it, fluff it, write it, redo it a few times, and he got an A. And, and what did he learn? You know, I I don't I think yeah. he probably learned just as much, um, but he's never going to be a writer. But you know, uh, you know, Toby, you've got some thoughts on on this as well as far as you know how we should be kind of clearing the work. Sure. I mean, I think it is, it is one of those Gutenberg moments, right? It's the, uh, the printing press. It's the, the weave, you know, the Luddite, right? We have, we have kind of a, a pivotal shift in time and, um, we need to rethink how we're, we test for things. What, what do we need to learn? Right. I know, like, I still had to do long division in grade school. I started like, why did I do long division? I never have to do long division. Um, so there are some core concepts we still need to teach the idea of rote recitation of, facts and figures is just so irrelevant. When you have a device with you that's always connected, um, being your phone or your laptop or iPad or whatever you have with you that is connected to the internet and to these all these AI agents, um, I think what will be expected of us to be successful going forward is very different. Thus, we need to teach very differently. And you know, university systems and, and school systems in general are pretty adverse to change. Right? You have a few folks, but as a whole, very adverse to change. This is a C... Uh, CG technology that we, we just have to really rethink what we expect of kids to learn and grow. Because right, like why would we like spell check? I love spell check. I would be a terrible speller without spell check. That's a, a minor form of of machine learning. Yeah, right? why it, wouldn't I use that? Yeah, and, and let's let's take a quick second and, and and talk about how advanced these are because you know right now uh, ChatGTP four um, has broken the Turing test. You know it's it's been able to pass. You know this like hey, um, you know and, and and Tony, if you want to talk real quick about the Turing test, you can do it more eloquently than I am. But but you have this like this massive bar that was set years ago, like that if AI can reach this, it's just as good of as hu as a human. But it still can't do the picture matching of like, you know, the basic, like, show us the, you know, this, the basic Google, like, show us the picture of a bus. Like, do you see a stoplight in here? Like, so it's still, it passed the one test, but you know, wh where is this going on? How do we monitor what actual AI intelligence is? Yeah. I mean, it's a great question. And, and there's, there's a, there's a few different ways that people are thinking about this. So yeah, the, the Turing test seems to have been reached. Um, and there's been a handful of explicit experiments. I think there's one reference in this article where. Um, you know, people were only able to guess the AI 60% of the time, which is pretty much the same as random chance. Um, now that gets higher the more people get used to AI and sort of figure out a little bit how you might break it, right? The kinds of questions that you might ask, which AI is bad at. Um, and this is a great example because this sort of picture challenges, like for, for instance, GPT-4 is really bad at, um, figuring out like a straight in poker. 
which I think is kind of hilarious because it's not that hard. <laughs> it can use incredible, it can teach you about quantum mechanics, but it can't see you straight. Um, and there's a bunch of other things like, um, uh, you know, it can't think three dimensionally. So there's interesting questions that you can ask. There was a difference between 3.5 and four that four was slightly better at it. But if you add additional dimensions to that additional complexity, you know, talk about a room, talk about one thing being above another thing, below another thing. Um, but it's interesting the way that, I mean, a lot of that, those kinds of things, um, come from quite an adversarial perspective. You know, it's, it's about like, is the AI tricking me? How can I sort of push and pull it into a given space? Um, I think for people working with AI a lot at the moment, there's certainly an idea of, um, uh, an ethical idea of disclosure. Um, so if it's an AI doing the work, you know, describing it as such, um, kind of like saying, you know, if you're going to send an email that's written by AI writing in the footer, hey, by the way, you know, ChatGPT helped me with this email. It's kind of polite more than anything else. And then beyond that, of course, kind of the use of AI is, you know, it, it, you know, I think we almost get a little bit past the idea of like, like hitting it in the face until it surrenders and instead thinking of it as this sort of this, you know, mutual progress. Um, and I think the education is a great example because, you know, I don't know, you know, if anyone out there has, you know, tried to learn something with ChatGPT, but it's fun and it's interesting. And it's like, it's one of the best teachers that I've ever had. You know, I need to learn about something you want to ask you questions. And, you know, I, I want my kids to lean into that too, to be taught by AI. Um, and obviously understanding it hallucinates sometimes. It makes things up sometimes. Therefore, you know, you don't rely on it with total certainty. Not dissimilar to some teachers out there who might. But I think that what you're underscoring is critical, critical thinking mm-hmm. versus, versus, you know, the, this educational side of things. And I think if you teach kids critical thinking and how to get to a, a path of a right answer, it doesn't matter what the AI is telling you. It doesn't matter what the AI is stating. You know how to double check, you know, it, its statements and you say, that doesn't sound right, or that that seems like it's it's incorrect. Let me double check. Oh, it is correct. Let's let's not just accept what's being said. You know, said your this is you know AI is not your your uh, your your number one passion here, but you probably spend a bunch of time with it. Is is I spend uh, a ton of time with with ChatGPT. So I use it for um, anything from like summarizing articles uh, that I might not have time to read, or where yeah. I just want to like I want to kind of get up to date on a, a mishmash of articles together. Um, I use it for crafting emails. Like if I have a rough idea of what I want to write, it can write it more eloquently. And so I don't have to kind of waste time thinking about how to phrase something politely. I can just say, here's what I want to get across. Can you phrase it sort of politely and eloquently for me? And, um, and in, in what we're doing, like credit, I can see tremendous application for AI in future where we might use it for underwriting. So uh, underwriting portfolio management, and so I, I view it the same way that, you know, Tony and Toby were describing, which is I, I see it as a helper, which increases the productivity of me and everyone else on our team. And, you know, th- this, this concept that it's, um, kind of replacing things that we should be knowing kind of gets, kind of gets back to the, the, the original idea when, so when you, when we first transitioned from the spoken word to the written word, there was this, uh, sense that we we're all going to, um, reduce our memories and be stupider because we wouldn't have to hold all the information that we ever needed to know in our head. And, uh, we would just be able to look it up. And I just view it as the, the kind of the latest, um, the latest iteration of that very same dilemma. Uh, but we should be seeking for like, how do we maximize our output? And chat GPT is, is one of the biggest breakthroughs that we've had there in, you know, a really long time since the PC. I love that. So let's talk about the the repercussions of this. Uh, we currently have two uh, multiple strikes uh, in Hollywood uh, over this. So actors and writers are protesting for fair compensation and protection from AI encroachment. Uh, Disney has massive AI uh, integrations, uh, but acknowledges the the potential challenges. Uh, this is not only new, uh, you know, so, and, and by the way, AI positions in Hollywood right now are upwards of $900,000 a year for humans to be able to help integrate AI into these things. Um, th- th- this is this new world of which I think that everyone has kind of cautioned. I think Elon has said it. You know, there's a lot of people that are saying it. I think this is one of the reasons why WorldCoin exists in Sam's mind is, is that you do need a, a universal basic income. I, I, I may not agree with, with that thesis of why. Um, but, but, you know, Tony is someone, this is what you spend time with and don't worry, we'll get to the rest of the panel on this. Like, 
how scared should people be about, you know, something from writing scripts uh, to really their every day to day job? You know, are some safer than others? Um, you know, clearly construction is, is going to be safe for a minute. Uh, but if you're just an analyst, as we heard, you know, Sid said, you know, should, should they get concerned? Yeah, and I, and I think I think this is a really really sad area. So my my sister works in the in the film industry, and um, she works like a very very long hours, a very like low pay. Um, it's very volatile in terms of getting jobs. Um, you, know, you know, shoots happen or don't happen. People don't get paid a lot. It's a really like it's a it's a messy industry. Um, and I think that the reality is it's also extremely vulnerable to AI. Um, and and in lots of different levels. I mean, it's it's vulnerable on the on the writing side. It's vulnerable on the performing side. Um, you know, AI actors, AI voices um, are remarkably easy to do, and it's moving incredibly quickly. Yeah, there's, there's, you know, obviously on the directing side, the editing side, the production side. Um, this is a very attackable space uh, from AI, the AI, AI perspective. Now, I do know people in the industry who are embracing AI. Um, the thing is that, of course, it's more senior people with positions of power and authority who are essentially sort of using AI to not need more junior people who they already probably weren't paying very well. Um, so that is a big deal. And when I talk about AI as being kind of a co-pilot to productivity tool, all these kinds of things, that's definitely true. And it's, and you know, there's a sort of this maxim, which I think is true, which is, you know, your job won't be replaced by AI. It'll be job replaced by someone who uses AI really well. So you should learn how to work with and use AI. But there are clearly limits to that, and um, definitely think the film industry is is a, is a is a great example. I've heard interesting stories about things like um, you know certain productions where they you know have intentionally been moving towards uh, you know a particular kind of you know AI generated content in order to make it easier and easier and easier to essentially need fewer resources, fewer actors, fewer voices, fewer whatever. Um, essentially like uh, production companies who are preparing themselves to adopt more and more AI uh, uh, actors, voices, content, staging, uh, you know, whatever, whatever. Um, so yeah, th this is a huge deal. And it's very sad because it's an interesting industry. Like it, it looks like it's so wealthy, um, but actually it's full of a lot of people who make almost no money and work extremely hard. So yeah, sad, sad one, really. You, you know, and I, I've been, you know, it's one of those things I don't think if you're on Twitter, you can avoid it. <clears throat> and there's a bunch of people that have said, you know, and created trailers for movies that don't exist, 100% from AI. So generated the script, generated the dialogue, generated the actors and, and everything else uh, along, along the ways. And it, it's just like, is it good? I don't know. But we're talking about a conceptual at this point that this is just where we're starting. And so, you know, as we hear things that are kind of flowing in, you know, Toby, how does this, you know, impact your day to day world? You know, forget cryptocurrencies and, and blockchain. Yeah. You know, are you seeing this in some of your, your industry uh, as well? Yeah. No, I, I'm a, I guess as an entrepreneur, an extreme rationalist of like, and kind of first principles thinking, like, this is going to happen. Like as Tony said, it, it just makes so much sense to fight against it. Um, and we've seen some, you know, major, you know, trends like this in the path, whether it was uh, kind of mentioned the, the Luddite before, kind of when the textile mills came, they were like, no, you can't use advanced technology in mills because you're going to replace all these people. Well, really they did, and it created more jobs, not less. They're going to kinds of jobs. You know, when mobile banking came out, like, well, you're going to destroy all the banks and all the, you know, uh, uh, the tellers are going to go away. And like, they're actually, they became different jobs. They had actually, actually they hired many more in some cases, but it was a different kind of job. It wasn't the menial, I'm going to count number or dollar bills. I'm now going to help you with other financial services and help you with other things. I think Tony said it great. I'm like, I don't think the jobs go away, but it, the jobs end up being by people who know how to use AI and they can, you know, really, uh, I think we, as honestly, as consumers, we benefit because you no longer need massive budgets and massive teams and all these people to create. You actually have a lot more creators creating more things, but it is going to look very different to fight that wave, man, that's a losing battle. Um, so the, um, that, that kind of protectionism in general. So I'm a pretty free markets person for almost everything. Um, mm -hmm. And when I, when I see kind of protectionism like this, it just doesn't, doesn't seem to make sense. Right? So I, I feel bad for him on one hand, like guys, we got to retrain. We got to move on. We got to help you find something else. Cause there's just no way uh, AI doesn't take a, a massive chunk of the human resources needs out of kind of creative production. And I think this is, you know, it's a new technology and we're seeing, you know, workflows change. I mean, when, when you know, the Hollywood, I, I remember the last track they went to, it went from film to digital and they're like, wait, 
wait, we have all these people that, 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 you know, have to hold and manage the films and all these other things and we're, we're killing the industry, but like, you know, the industry was moving towards digital. The, the movie was moving towards this. And, and I think that there's this concept of like niche content, um, that is faster, cheaper to be generated because there's so much garbage on TV and I, I, it's great if people watch it. But if they don't, you know, the idea that like, you know, we produce a podcast here that is not watched by millions of people. It's watched by thousands, but the thousands that watch it, you know, get a lot of, you know, um, value out of that you know Sid yeah. you, you said you're using this quite a bit in your daily your daily life I mean would you want to see more niche content directly towards well, your preferences couple of interesting points like one of the ways that I use chat GPT that I think is probably unusual is I created like a virtual board of advisors or directors where I'm like okay I'll have Elon Musk I'll have Ender Wigan I'll have some other fictional characters and I'll ask them what they would do or the type of questions they would ask me if they were a board of directors and so I think if we extended that from the information realm where I'm asking them for kind of text questions and prompts to think about corporate strategy and, and uh, partnerships and, you know, product development at Maple and said, what if I had a chat, chip, a chat bot or rather an AI that I could use to generate a personalized movie or a personalized, you know, anim- animated TV show or something that's kind of about the content I want to see that is the right kind of niche content for me. Um, I, th- I think there'd be a huge market for that. And I could imagine people having like on-demand movies where it's not just on-demand where you can stream it on-demand and it was already made. It's made on the spot based on your prompt. So um, on that note, though, there, is a, there was a great uh, short story that I think was, uh, was by Ted Chang or Ken Liu. And uh, it's about a woman who um, she, gets, uh, she gets a job as a screenwriter. And she goes, and it's a company like Apple, and she goes and sits there and she's meant to, she thinks she's meant to be um, providing critiques on movies, but actually it's an AI that is showing random images, watching her reaction, recrafting it, and then applying dialogue and music and everything else. And it's just kind of building a movie on the spot from her reactions and tweaking it until it hits a perfect film. And I think you can imagine that all of those things could be done in the next, you know, in the next few years. So it's probably not that far away. Yeah, and I think I think we've seen this at a very juvenile level. So there's there's a couple mm-hmm. apps that that make you know children's books on the fly. You know, it asks five questions: what is what is your your toddler into today? And then is automatically generate. You know, how long do you want it to be? Ten pages, a hundred pages, and then it automatically generates the content. This and it's ten times better than any of the the stuff that you can go get at Barnes and Noble. And so I think you know where we're starting with you know the, the the younger children that are able to be like they're just wild by anything the fact that we could get to something that you know Sid's like no I want to spend my time on this I I value the input that comes you know comes from this virtual board of directors I think it's an amazing uh concept and, and we'll be clearly tracking it for a while uh we have time for one more story I'm going to switch back uh, just so really quickly uh to to the DeFi market because I think there's some very important things happening and Sid I'd love your opinion on this one uh Italy's central bank has partnered with Polygon and Firebox I think two uh, titans in our industry that are really doing an amazing things. I, I give Polygon so much credit uh, right now for everything they're doing. Um, in a six-month initiative to enable traditional financial institutions uh, to experiment with DeFi and tokenize assets safely and, reg- and through regulatory process. Um, so does uh, you, you feel confident these guys are on the right path with things? Yeah, I think uh, Polygon has done a great job in terms of building out institutional partnerships. Uh, and bringing in a lot of uh, traditional finance firms, uh, even with even if it's a basic proof of concept, just bringing them to the table um, and getting them to use, uh, you know, whether it's tokenizing a fund or settling uh, settling a bond, I think was another transaction that they did. But I think Polygon's done a tremendous job in terms of the institutional partnerships, and Fireblocks is the other one who's done a great job in terms of. Um, Courting traditional finance, I think they had the uh, the partnership a while back with uh, with Boney. But what I like about this is that the use of Fireblocks allows for self custody by these firms. So instead of saying, um, instead of kind of gatekeeping it for the institutions who are participating them participating in this, they're giving them a way to self custody custody the assets because that's the technology that Fireblocks provides. And so I think this is actually a really interesting uh, way to do it. And um, and so I'd, I'd, I'd like to see more pilots like this. And I think, you know, RWAs have continued to be one of the, uh, one of the hot trends this year, particularly in the DeFi space. And I think we'll just, 
we will continue to see that. And, um, and yeah, so I think across the board, this is, uh, this, this story was pretty good news. Love it. Toby, what's your thoughts as, as someone that, uh, builds wallets and, and spends yeah. a lot of time in the space as well? No, I think it's uh, it, it's a great move. I think it's great for the industry. I think you know early on in the blockchain web three, we had a, a little bit too much of the anarchist uh, mindset of like no government, no banks, no centralization. Don't work with anybody that has ever been a real business. And like I think that really hurt the industry a lot more than it's helped. Um, so I love the decentralization, but you know, the idea that we have to connect with banks, like we have to connect with real businesses. We have to you know have this seamless nature of uh, Web3 blockchain offers some incredible capabilities and utility um, that provides more trust. There's a lot of these great things I don't need to kind of rehash for this audience. Um, but the idea that we can do that without ever touching a bank or some sort of uh, centralized um, service, I just think it really has hurt the industry. So I, I love seeing what Polygon and Fireblocks are doing here. Again, two great companies in this space. Um taking a very practical approach of how do we engage with uh, real world banks and financial institutions that already have customers that already trust them. Um, I've even seen status like people trust banks almost more than any other entity in the world, but more than governments, more than schools, more than their own company. They, just for just the, the lowest NPS scores. What's that? Yeah. Just the lowest NPS. Yeah. Terrible experience, but they trust them. Maybe it's a correlation. Like they're so terrible, but I still trust them. Um, yeah. But the, yeah. So, so getting the banks to also trust kind of this new type of technology is critical. You know, one of the things I want to point out, and I, I talk about this quite often, uh, especially at conferences and whatnot, is is there is no winner at this point in time. Like there is no, there there isn't anyone that even is even close to what I would say is global adoption Ethereum. I think you know with their market cap, you know that's a that's a dollar amount. That's not an actual user amount. I think that there's still like there's so much room left for somebody to come in and truly innovate. You know, we're still in the early phases of Web three. Um, you know, I, and I include AI in, in in Web three, which is why we talk about it so much because. Uh, blockchain to me was not designed for humans. It was designed for for machines and for AI to be able to you know kind of navigate this this world uh, and provide some sense of order uh, through decentralization and, and to kind of cut through the chaos. So I really you know again I, I applaud when governments get involved. I, I think that you know it seems like if you're working with Polygon, they have a good idea of decentralization uh, and, and blockchain. And Fireblocks you know certainly understands custody and and we use them at, at Y Whales. Um, it's the closest thing to kind of running your own bank because um, they do have so many rules compared to like a Genosis, like multi-sig of which is just won't even get into that right now because I'll get a bunch of hate mail. Um, but but it, we're seeing the evolution of like where things should be going. And I think that you're entirely right, Sid. It's starting to get parody with it's starting to look and smell a lot like traditional banks because that's what you want. You want the safety and security. Um, but but we do need some nuances around there. And I think that we'll see uh, an evolution the same way we saw Blockbuster have to have to either evolve or die. Um, and and we'll see the same thing here. Either either they're going to evolve with the new technology or or they'll go away. But it's going to be a consumer adoption trend that has not even started yet. I think one of the one of the interesting things to think about with banks though is the modern bank kind of evolved because cash, you know, you couldn't actually move large amounts of cash as a bare instrument. What are you going to do? Carry around a wheelbarrow full of it everywhere? Like we saw how that worked out in, in um, Weimar, Germany. But it'd be interesting to, like the entire bank's business model is that they hold all your cash and then they lend out some of it and then they have enough of float to kind of meet all liquidity demands in a daily basis, except during periods of acute sort of um, panic like we saw in March. And so it's going to be interesting, I think, when you have cash as a bearer instrument that everybody self-custodies through a multi-sig of some kind, um, what actually happens to banks? Because you can't have that float sitting in a banking system being lent out. And so it'll be interesting to see whether it produces a really meaningful increase in the cost of borrowing. Like if everybody's just sitting on cash as a, uh, as a payment instrument rather than something that is invested or loaned out or pushed into, uh, into generating productive capacity in an economy. <clears throat> so do you think they'll end up moving more to, I mean, I can, I can, I can use my cash and buy a 10-year CD or 5-year CD. I can, I'm going to allow a bank to lock it up. Um, mm -hmm. will we find new models that it's still called joint custody, but the bank can still lend it out, right? Do you think we'll end up in the, that kind of a model, which again, kind of sounds a little bit funny if it's joint custody of, Hey, it's, it's, um, it's, it is kind of a, I'm allowing my money to be still be used for loans, but I don't know. Yeah. You're, but you're right. The, the, the whole model that the reason banking is, is 
free, frankly, for the but most people is because they can use that money to lend out and, and make fees uh, in other ways. Yeah, but but really and and really long duration um, assets as well. And so, if they have to always invest it into loans that they can recall at a week's notice, they're mm-hmm. not going to generate. They're not going to be subsidizing the free service for the rest of us. And so, I think. One of the interesting things will be whether it has to move in a more explicit direction, whether where you either have like a, a, the equivalent of a term deposit for you know either multiple years and then kind of a, a checking account that you get no interest on that you can pull all the money out um, instantly if you want. A lot of banking, because of the way prudential regulation works, a lot of commercial lending has shifted out of banks and gone to the likes of Aries and Apollo, where a bank creates money. Aries and Apollo don't create money; they take money from an investor. And then they and then they lend it out for on a on a longer duration. And maybe that model is going to maybe that dichotomy is going to become starker, where more money flows to uh, to that kind of service where it's lent out, and then everybody else just you know we we get zero interest on a checking account with a bank. The 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 world is shifting and changing, and uh, it will continue to evolve. And and guys, I wanted to say we've reached the top of our hour. I uh, can't appreciate the uh, tell you how much I appreciate the time, uh, the insights, and really, again, it's it's amazing to kind of hear the perspectives from the people that work inside this every day. Uh, Toby, thank you so much. Tony, really appreciate uh, you you volunteering your iris. <laughs> to uh to, to the cause making sure that we we know that uh when things go down we can commiserate with you and say oh yeah tony did that he remember when he uh he came on there and, and sid as always uh thank you so much for your time uh really uh, and again for anyone that doesn't understand you know what sid does he's really pushing the envelopes of of you know truly traditional finance onto blockchain um and it's really an amazing project as well as everything that everyone in these guys are doing so please check the show notes uh, make sure to visit all of their projects uh why whales this is a, a wrap on episode four. We'll see you guys all soon. Thank you guys. Why Whales was founded in 2021 by Jay Steinbeck, a passionate entrepreneur and business owner with the purpose of bringing YPO and YNG members together in the cryptoverse. Why Whales is a collaborative and confidential community centered around cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology, an exclusive crypto hub of more than 600 members. Be notified when we release new content, please subscribe to our show and your preferred listening app. For more information, visit www.ywhales.com. YWales is not affiliated with YPO, but at this time only allow for YPO, YPO Gold, and YNG members due to privacy and confidentiality. Support and production for today's episode was done by Truthwork Media. Nothing in the podcast constitutes professional and or financial advice, nor does any information on the podcast constitute a comprehensive or complete statement of the matters discussed or the law relating thereto.